Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. This week on the Beeson Podcast, you're in for a real treat. We get to hear a lecture delivered by the late Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer here at Beeson Divinity School on Preaching the Old Testament Narrative. This was a part of our Conger Lecture series several years ago, and Dr. Ochtemeyer in this particular lecture develops the whole idea of story. Now, that's an interesting word, story. Sometimes it's used in a kind of almost disparaging way. Well, I'm telling stories as though it really weren't true. Or isn't that just a story, as though it's something we could discount? But she gets down to the root of that word and explains it in terms of God's overarching narrative, God's meta-narrative within Scripture itself, beginning in creation, coming to a focus in the incarnation, and culminating finally in the consummation of all things at the end of times. And in this particular lecture, Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer looks at some great texts at the very early part of the Bible, in Genesis and Exodus, and shows how rooted in them is the whole Christian story, the whole Christian narrative of who God is and what he has done in our lives and in the history of redemption. Early in the lecture, she she makes a challenge. She says, I wonder if you could tell the whole Christian story in just a few minutes. Have you ever thought about that? Could you do that? Well, she actually does that. So listen for how the Christian message, the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation uh, is unfolded sometimes in just a very few words if we take into account the overarching structure of the Bible. Well, Dr. Ochtemeyer, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, was one of my great heroes, one of the great teachers and proclaimers of God's word of the past generation. Uh, we miss her so much. The Lord took her home to heaven several years ago. But I'm so glad we have this lecture to present to you by Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. Now listen and enjoy. I want to express my gratitude to Colonel Conger and to the faculty of Beeson and to all of you for the opportunity to be with you. It is a pleasure for me to be here. I want to talk today about preaching from the narratives of the Old Testament, and tomorrow we'll talk about preaching from the prophets. But first I want to ask, how many of you have a Bible in hand? Ah, pretty good. You are not far from the kingdom of God. (laughs) My husband always says that it's very difficult to study the Bible without a Bible in hand. It's like playing tennis without a ball. It leaves too much to the imagination. So we will be referring to specific texts uh, in the Old Testament, and it will help you if uh, you follow along with those texts. Now, every community, in order to be a community, must have a story, a history handed down from one generation to the next that tells where the community came from and what its character is and what it is supposed to do. So, for example, each of you has a family story from which you gain part of your self-identity. And all of us, as Americans, have a national story, a history that defines and guides us as a free and democratic nation. But it is because the Christian Church has lost its identifying story that it is not very Christian anymore. The story of the Church, the history of where it came from and what its character is and what it is supposed to do, that story obviously is contained in the Bible. And that story was once faithfully preserved and handed down from generation to generation. That history created the Church in the beginning, and it has always sustained the Church's life. But as all of you know, many church people do not know that story, that biblical history, anymore. Whenever any one of us preaches, we have to automatically assume that the people in the pews know almost nothing of the biblical story. The Bible's worldview is alien to the majority of our people. Its characters are largely unknown, its storyline, its overarching themes, the way it all hangs together 
These are unknown mysteries to many people, and indeed sometimes matters of indifference. And the result is that the Church no longer has a common story which binds it together as a community. It no longer has a common purpose to define its mission in the world. And in fact, it no longer has a common definition of what the Church is or even of who God is. We have lost our founding and guiding story in the Christian Church. And it is therefore no wonder that the Church is declining in many ways in both numbers and in influence in our society. Without the biblical story that created it in the beginning and that has always sustained its life, the Christian Church simply cannot continue to be the Church. Now, I sometimes like to examine pastors and future pastors on this score to see if they know the biblical story. And the question I often ask of all of you is, could you tell the whole biblical story with God as the subject in a 20-minute sermon? Now, I've told that story in a very brief fashion in my book, Preaching from the Old Testament, and I've often recounted that history in lectures that I've given. But once again, I want to do very briefly, I want to outline the biblical story for you in about five minutes so we will know what we're talking about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the galaxies, and all that is in them. He created them good, full of order and life, running over and full of abundance. And he gave them all in great love and esteem to us, the creatures made in his image, that we might care for and keep his creation and enjoy it in our communities as faithful stewards of his universe subject to his lordship and his kindly guidance. And yet we human beings don't like very much to be servant to anyone, not even to God. And so daily we try to shake off our creaturehood and to turn ourselves into our own gods and goddesses with power over our own affairs, our own destinies, our own relationships. And the result has been that we have corrupted God's world and despoiled its goodness, disrupting all the beauty of nature and all the loveliness of human community. Death now stalks our streets, which were intended to be full of life. Hatreds, suspicions, envies, greed now poison our commerce and love. Blood flows polluting the ground. Loneliness sits in our living rooms. The scarred earth gives back thorns and thistles, and we walk in some awful twilight where our feet stumble and the goal is uncertain and there is no meaning to it all. And that is the world we have created for ourselves by rebelling against God's lordship and by claiming that we are our own rulers instead. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a summary of Genesis 1 through 11. And yet God will not have done with us. He has made us for life abundant. And so he sets out in the second millennium B.C. to reverse the effects of our cursed rebellion. He sets out to make a new people in a new land, living in a new community of justice and love under his guiding rule. He calls one man named Abraham out of Mesopotamia to be the father of that new community. And then through all of the vicissitudes and agonies of actual life in the ancient Near East, God guides the descendants of Abraham toward his good fulfillment of abundant life in the land, delivering them from slavery to the powers of empire and world, pointing out the way they are to walk by his living presence in the covenant law, protecting them from the ravages of hunger and thirst and enemies, settling them in a good land flowing with milk and honey, and constantly forgiving their pride and wrong finally even giving them a Davidic king to be their protector of justice in peace and in war. And it is God's hope to draw all nations into that covenant community of Israel, that all people may live in peace and righteousness under his present lordship. 
But Israel, like we, will have none of it. She is as rebellious and proud as we. She whores after the gods of nature and nations. She forgets the one who has made her. She spurns God's commandments and corrupts his justice and relies on her own devices to make her own fame and to secure for herself her own safety in the world of peoples. So she is rejected as God's people and her national life is destroyed. Covenant, king, land, peoplehood, temple, blessing, life, all are done away in the holocaust of the Babylonian exile. Yet even in the midst of the ruins, the prophets cling to God's promises, peering forth into the future to proclaim that God will yet make out of Israel's remnant a new people of Abraham and of David. And then the centuries wait and wait in hope until the time is fulfilled and there is born in a stable cave in the village of Bethlehem a son of David and of Abraham who at the same time is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus Christ becomes in his person all that Israel was meant to be, the obedient and faithful Son of God called out of Egypt, the cornerstone of a new community of righteousness and peace for all peoples, the Davidic ruler who knows how to protect the poor and to establish justice in society, the figure of the true human being who knows how to live in service to the Lordship of God. In Christ, once again, God sets out to establish his new covenant community and to restore to humankind the good life he intended for all of us in the beginning. But we will have none of that either. And so on the awful tree of Golgotha, we think once more to do away with God's promise and purpose, and we bury his son in the cold rock tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But on the third day at dawn, God raises his son from the dead. He triumphs over all of our attempts to defeat his lordship. Jesus Christ rises victorious over our wrong, our pride, our attempts to be our own gods. He rises triumphant over the death that we seem determined to embrace. He rises once and for all in the power of the sovereign king who is determined to forgive us, that we may have life and have it more abundantly. In short, Christ begins the final rule, the kingship, the kingdom of God on earth. And he promises to all who trust his power and victory, strength to live an obedient and faithful life, and participation in that new community of eternal life and good which will finally cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom comes. It is begun in Christ. Gods are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that is the incredible and yet historical outline of that story which created the church in the beginning and which now alone has the power to sustain and guide its life. Now, obviously, to be the church and to know themselves to be God's people, somehow our congregations are going to have to see themselves involved in that biblical history. They are going to have to realize that the story recounted in the Bible is the story of their lives. But how can we aid our people to do that? How can we help them to regain their knowledge of and identification with the biblical history? How can we do that from the pulpit? Well, I think it is a matter of taking very specific texts and of patiently explaining and expounding those texts so that our people enter into the biblical stories and identify with them. And that is what I want to do with you in this first lecture. I want to take some of the narratives from the Old Testament and use them as the stories of our lives. And perhaps if I do that, you can begin to frame a whole series of sermons on who we are as the people of God using these biblical passages. Now, I want to start very simply at the beginning. Would you turn to Genesis 2? 
There we have a marvelous picture of God there in Genesis 2 because he is shown in all of his infinite care for us, creating us in the most intimate fashion. There in verse 7, like a potter working with a lump of clay, God shapes us carefully in his fingers, and then there we lie, a hunk of clay in the hands of our Creator. But God breathes the breath of life into our nostrils, and we become living beings. And so, as you sit here this morning, you see, with your lungs going in and out in their regular rhythm, you are being sustained alive by the breath of our loving God. For if God held his breath, you would all return to dead physical matter. And then look at those marvelous gifts that God gives to us. And let me say, ladies and gentlemen, that the story of Adam and Eve is intended by its writer to be the story of us. Adam in the Hebrew, Adam in the Hebrew, is the Hebrew word for humankind. And the writer is writing a story here about humankind. He is writing a story about you and me. And we see God's marvelous care for you and me here in this story. There in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. I have always been struck by the fact that the first gift mentioned here is the gift of beauty. When our son was a little boy, he's a grown man now in teaching, but when he was a little boy, he collected reptiles and amphibians. And uh, occasionally he would go down to the dime store and buy one of these little green turtles. You can't get them anymore because they've been found to carry disease. But at that time, he could buy them. He would go down to the dime store, buy one of these little turtles, and bring it home and put it in his aquarium. And occasionally, I would take that turtle out of the aquarium and look at its breastplate. And its breastplate was marked with the most intricate design. And every turtle was different. Every breastplate was different. And I used to wonder to myself, who sees these things? Who sees the intricate designs on the breastplates of turtles? I mean, other turtles? <laughs> or who sees the colors on the wings of a fly unless you look through a microscope? They're brilliantly colored. Or who sees all those brilliantly colored fish down at the bottom of the ocean unless Jacques Cousteau goes down and takes pictures of them? Who sees all these things? Well, God sees them. God loves beauty. I like Annie Dillard's phrase. She says, the Creator loves pizzazz. God loves beauty, and so he simply lavishes on his world color and form and design and light and shadow. And the first gift that he gives to us is every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And just go outside and look around you, and you can see the gifts. And then, of course, every tree that is good for food in the same verse, verse 9, because our Creator is always interested in our material welfare. And when the Messiah comes, he gives drink to the thirsty and food to the hungry. And in verse 15 there, then God gives us our work. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And so God gives us the gift of work as a merciful gift. You all know how terrible it is not to have anything to do after you've already spent the two weeks of vacation. Our work is a merciful gift of God, and it is both creative and preservative, to till it and to keep it. And then in verse 18, then the Lord God said, is it, not, it is not good that the man should be alone. And I've often thought that's one of the most merciful words in the Bible because we were not created to be self-enclosed, self-fulfilling, autonomous egos. But we were created for a relationship. And here the relationship is that of marriage. And so, out of the ground the Lord God, in verse 19, formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But there was not found a helper 
fit for the man amongst the beasts. Now this is a passage, you know, that sends the feminists up the wall because they don't know any Hebrew. But the fit for him, every the helper that is fit for him in the Hebrew is kinigdo, a helper corresponding to him. That is, one in whom the man sees himself, one with whom he can care and share and commune. But there's not found in the world of nature a helper, kinigdo, fit for him, corresponding to him, because we were created not to have relationships primarily with the natural world, but with one another. And so God causes the deep sleep to fall upon the man. You cannot watch God's creative work, and out of the man he takes a rib and fashions from it the woman and brings her to the man, and the man cries out in that ecstatic cry. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here is the one with whom I can share my life. Here is my mutual helper. Here is the one with whom I can care and share and commune. And the Bible is celebrating in the strongest terms the good gifts of the body, of sex, of the desire of the sexes for one another, of marriage and of the subsequent home. But this story also teaches us our limitations as human beings, because in verse 17 there, there is a tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's a tree that symbolizes our attempts to run our own lives. And in the day that we eat of it, we shall surely die. In other words, there are limits on our existence. We are not gods and goddesses. We do not find the divine within ourselves, contrary to the radical feminists. We are creatures created to serve and love and trust our Creator. And you see, our obedience of that Creator is our paradise. But we will obey our Creator only if we trust Him. Only if we trust that he wants only good for us. And of course, that is the trust that is pictured as lacking there in Genesis 3. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, the story of our lives. So it starts out, now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. The serpent is not intended at the beginning of this story to be Satan. Rather, the serpent is simply a wild creature that God has made, and his only distinguishing characteristic is that he is more subtle. And so he engages the woman in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has called the first conversation about God. This woman was created in an intimate fashion in the, in the fingers of her Lord. Now the serpent leads her to step outside of that intimate relationship and to talk about God as an object. We will set him out there and just talk about him. We're going to do theology, ladies and gentlemen. We will talk about God. Can we trust him? Is he a good God or is he a bad God? We'll talk about God. And so the servant causes the woman uh, or brings the woman into a conversation in which she is confronted with three temptations. And those are the same three that our Lord confronted in the wilderness before he began his ministry. But first of all, you see, the serpent tempts the woman to think that God is not good. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, now, it's very interesting, the subtlety of this story, because, you know, Eve, like us, is, uh, is very zealous to defend God. We're always out there defending God, aren't we? Oh, no, 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 no. God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said that. He never said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat of its fruit. And what has happened here is a little self-will has entered the picture. 
The woman has started setting up her own little teeny moral code, just like we do. You know, if you want to be a Christian, you can't do that and that and that and that. Or you have to do these things. A self-will, her own little code has entered in, and so the door is open to crack. And the serpent sees this opportunity and sets before the woman these three temptations. First, to believe that God is not good. All those limitations that God has put on you, Eve, he won't let you have what you want, will he? He keeps giving you all those commandments about what you can have and can't have, and he won't let you run your own life. He won't let you be free to be you, Eve. God is not good. And a lot of people, a lot of our people have that view of the scriptures and of the commandments. And the second temptation is to believe that God is not serious. There in verse 4, the servant says, you will not die. You won't die when you disobey God's commandments. God doesn't really mean what he has said. You know, all those laws, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Come on. God can't be serious. If we try to save our own lives and look out for ourselves and get ahead in the world, we will lose our lives. If we do not keep Jesus' words, we are like persons building their houses on the sand. Unless we turn and become like little children in our trust, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. No. God will always forgive us, no matter what we do. That's his business. God really is not serious about any of these commandments he's given us. And then the third temptation, you see, the most serious of all, is to believe that God is a jealous, petty little ruler without whose guidance we can do very well in the world. In verse 5, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can slip the bonds of creaturehood, you see, and become the master of your own destiny. You can decide what is right and wrong in the world and plan your own secular future. Dorothea Soli has said that. She says, to live we do not need what has repeatedly been called God, a power that intervenes, rescues, judges, and confirms. We do not have to sit around all year singing with Luther, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? No, she says, we are strong. We can accomplish things. We can create a new social order and a new world. Come, you can be like gods, knowing good and evil. But we are not God, are we? And there are limits on our existence, tempted though we are to think that they're not. But then what an accurate picture we have of our sin there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And that's a perfect picture of our sin. It looked like the right thing to do. None of us ever sets out deliberately to sin, not very often. We want to be Christians. We want to do the right thing. We want to follow Jesus. But some action looks like the right thing to do at the time. In our situation, in our society these days, it looks like the compassionate thing to do. It looks like the loving thing to do. But the only difficulty is that it goes against the commandment of God. And then, of course, in the same verse, or in verse 6, there's the sin of the man. And she gave to her husband, and he ate. And once again, there we are. That's our sin of complicity. He just goes along, and we just go along. Somebody makes a racial slur, and we just stand there and don't say a word. We just go along. 
And so you see, this ancient story is very much the story of our lives. But that is the basic story from which follows everything else in the Bible. The corruption of God's good creation pictured here infects the whole of the universe in the stories that follow. Brother is turned against brother in the stories of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Humankind as a whole comes to know only Lamech's terrible sword of vengeance, also in Genesis 4. All human community becomes impossible in the story of the Tower of Babel. And that intimate communion with God that we knew at the beginning is destroyed by our rebellion. His good gifts of marriage, of work, of beauty, of the fruitful earth are distorted into hatred, drudgery, ugliness, barrenness, and over it all lies the sentence of death, dust you are and to dust you shall return. For God is indeed a serious sovereign. And I think maybe our people can identify with that story when they read the morning headlines. But let's go on to another Old Testament narrative and talk about freedom. That's a key word in our time. And we rejoice over the freedom being wrought in Eastern Europe and in Russia. But so many seem to have a skewed notion of freedom in their personal lives. So many Americans believe that they can just be free in and of themselves, that they are indeed the masters of their fate and the captains of their own souls. But, of course, the Bible's viewpoint is that none of us is free. Either we are slaves to sin, says Paul, or we are slaves of Jesus Christ. And there is no neutral ground between those two bonds. And the Bible helps us identify with that in a very realistic way by telling us the story at the beginning of Exodus. Israel is enslaved there in Egypt in the book of Exodus. She is enslaved under Ramses II of Egypt. She is enslaved in his mud pits, making bricks for his many building projects. And ladies and gentlemen, when you're using these Old Testament stories, then draw the parallels with our lives. You see, we too are enslaved. We are enslaved to sin and death. We are caught in the mud pits of this sinful world, if you will. But then look at Exodus 2, 24 and 25. Well, let's start with 23. Exodus 2, verse 23. In the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help. Now, that's not a prayer. They simply cry out for help from some quarter. And their cry under bondage came up to God. And God heard their groaning. Watch the verbs. That's what you preach on. Preach on these verbs. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew their condition. And you see, there is our hope in the world that God remembers us. That he remembers that in Jesus Christ he's made a covenant with us. That he never forgets us, but that we are engraven on the palms of his hands, as Second Isaiah says. And then God saw the people of Israel, and God knew their condition. And so, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I despair of all my life and say, let only darkness cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, the night is bright as the day. And you see, surely that God of the Exodus is the God we know in Jesus Christ from whose loving gaze no darkness can hide us, and who knows our condition because he has come in the flesh of his Son and fully shared our human suffering, even our bondage unto death. And so turn to Exodus 14. 
If you start with verse 10 there in Exodus 14, Israel has escaped from Egypt, but Pharaoh has changed his mind, and the troops of Pharaoh, the forces of bondage, are hot on Israel's heels in pursuit. And look what Moses tells them there. Fear not, beginning in verse 13, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Totally undeserved. Israel has worked no piety. She has followed no law. This is simply a gift of God's loving mercy. And draw the parallel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, redeeming us also out of our slavery to sin and death long before we deserved it, long before we had done one thing to bring God's gift to us. Christ died for us, defeating every principality and power that enslaves us in this world, defeating our wrongs, our complicities, and our terribly human mistakes of judgment, defeating even those psychological chains that we think bind our souls, and yes, finally defeating that death that would turn all our labors and loves and lives into meaningless. And you see, it is that act, that redemption out of Egypt, that makes Israel a community. We sometimes think that Israel, when she was delivered from Egypt, was all one race or tribe or condition. But Exodus 12, verse 38, tells us otherwise. It says that Israel came up out of slavery a mixed multitude. And that is a good description of the Christian church. Also, we are a mixed multitude of every race and nation, every condition and interest. And the only tie we have in common and the only tie that Israel had in common was that they and we have all been redeemed together. That is our founding act. There is the basis of our community. Not blood, not soil, not economics, not society. No, the one thing that makes us a people is the redemption of God in Jesus Christ. And unless we remember that loving act of God toward us before, performed before we have done one thing to deserve it, we cannot be the community of the Christian church. Now, you see, Israel knew that. She knew that she had to remember what God had done for her. And so when she wants to describe her sin, for example, in Psalm 106, what does she say? They forgot. They forgot. They forgot what God had done. And so every year, each of Israel's families sits at table and eats unleavened bread and a lamb with bitter herbs. And when the children ask, what do these things mean? There in Exodus 13, verse 14, the father replies, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage. And draw the parallel, people. By the same token, we sit at table and remember our deliverance from bondage. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we do show forth, we do remember the Lord's death till he comes again. Now that was a pure act of love for Israel on God's part. And Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of people, but it is because the Lord loves you. Just as God so loved us and the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But God also has a purpose for redeeming us out of bondage because he has a purpose for his world. 
He is working to restore all his creation to the goodness he intended for it in the beginning. And Israel learns that when she leaves the shores of the Reed Sea behind her and travels across the desert to Sinai. So look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God has set up the relationship that's all prevenient grace. God has established the race, the relationship. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now you see Israel learns the meaning of her life. She is to be a special people to God. She is to be his kingdom of priests and his holy nation. And of course, to be holy in the Bible, as you all know, means to be set apart for the purpose of God. And she is to be a kingdom of priests, that is, she is to be the mediators of the knowledge of God to the rest of the world. God wants to restore his creation to its goodness. He wants to give it abundant life, and he asks Israel to be the instrument whereby he can affect that purpose in the world. But that is exactly the same purpose for the Christian church. Turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9. You, it says, all of you sitting here this morning... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, just like Israel. God chooses us as his special people for his purpose, and here's the purpose, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There, in a nutshell, is the mission of the church, to tell what God has done. And then he quotes Hosea, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so now from these stories, you see, we know what the church is and what it is supposed to do. And its mission parallels that of Egypt. And notice Israel's response back there in Exodus 19. She says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do of her own free will in response to what God has done for her, Israel agrees to be the instrument of God's working in the world. And so the covenant is cut there in Exodus 24 in a ceremony very much like the ceremony of the Lord's Supper. And we too, you see, celebrate that Lord's Supper every time we come to the table. And we too say all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Do you know the introduction to the, the invitation to the supper in the Book of Common Prayer? All of you who truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking henceforth in his holy ways, draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And the blood of the covenant is shared with the people, and we have become his kingdom of priests. And so Israel and we set out on our pilgrimage of faith, journeying toward that place of abundant life flowing with milk and honey. But God goes with Israel on her journey in that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night just as he also accompanies us in our journey toward our promised land. Lord, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In fact, according to Numbers 10, 33 and 34, God not only accompanies Israel, but he is three days' journey out there ahead of them. The ark goes three days' journey out there ahead of, of Israel to find the place where she should pitch her tent. You know, the ark of the covenant is the base of God's throne. And God is invisibly enthroned above it. So God is three days out there ahead of them. And that always reminds me of Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. The point man, the pioneer, the scout out there ahead of us. Three days. And in those three days, he has passed through the valley of the shadow of death, you see, and has found the way. 
And so we no longer have to be afraid when we walk through that valley. So all of this history of Israel, you see, furnishes us with vivid pictures of our life as the church, as the new covenant people of God. And this story enables us more clearly to see what God has done for us. But the Old Testament also furnishes us with the most realistic pictures of ourselves. And this I would like you to see. Turn to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. Now they're wandering through the wilderness here, God three days' journey out ahead of them, going with them. Numbers 11, verse 4, this is their attitude, this is Israel's attitude. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, some diet there. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And isn't that us and our ingratitude? Here we are, the people of God, surrounded on every side with God's gifts. Every day he gives us our daily bread. Every day he provides us the grace to resist temptation and to turn away from evil. Every day he guides our steps and numbers the hairs of our head and knows when we sit down and when we rise up and winds us round and round with his mercy. Every day he makes his sun to rise, though we be evil or good, and sends his rain to water the earth, whether we be just or unjust. Every day he forgives us and worries over us and visits us and cares for us. And what do we do? Well, we're just like Israel. Give us meat to eat. There is nothing at all but this manna to look at. It's a perfect picture of our ingratitude. Well, then look at Numbers 14, beginning with the first verse. Numbers 14. Now, the spies have been sent into the Promised Land, and they have brought back the report that there are giants in the land and fortified cities, and they can't, can't possibly take the land. And so all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why does the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. And again, isn't that us facing an unknown future? The difficulties ahead of us seem too great or we don't know what the medical tests will show. Our kids seem to be making all the wrong choices and we don't know what will become of them. The world is too threatening or a recession may come or my marriage is getting rockier every day. And so why has the Lord brought us into this land? Would it not be better just to go back to Egypt? Let's forget about our redemption by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's forget about trusting that God is good. Let's forget about being Christian. Back to Egypt, back to slavery. Let's take matters into our own hands. And how realistic a picture of ourselves the Old Testament gives us. We deserve God's judgment upon us for that lack of faith. And God determines to bring his judgment on the people in the passage that follows in 14, Numbers 14.10, following. But Moses mediates for the people. And we have a mediator too, don't we? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God forgives for the sake of the mediator and continues to accompany us on our journey. Now, many persons in our time have turned that constant forgiveness of God into cheap grace, of course. They think that God will always forgive no matter what they do and that any lifestyle will pass his muster and they can live as they like. But they should continue to read the story in Numbers 14. For none of that generation will be allowed to enter into the Promised Land except for Joshua and Caleb and the children. 
And you see, Israel's story is not only a parallel to ours, it is also a warning to us. And the epistle to the Hebrews picks that up, and it says, Harden not your hearts, as in the wilderness. For you see, God has a purpose in choosing us as he had a purpose in choosing Israel. He wants us, like Israel, to be the instrument of his working in his world. But we can be that instrument only if we obey him. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my peculiar treasure, my kingdom of priests, and my holy nation. God forgives us in order that we will respond to him in the gratitude of obedience. Psalm 130 has it right. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared or obeyed. There is forgiveness with God in order that we will obey him. But if we will obey, if we will be faithful, he can use us in his world, and we can indeed be his holy nation and his kingdom of priests. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.